Hello, thanks for listening to After Meal Chats, where we share a meal and chat with one another about anything. Given the current circumstances and the fact that we are based in California, I am unfortunately still unable to feed the guest speakers on this show and then chat with them afterwards. Instead, check out the description for a kimchi jjigae recipe that I have made this past week. Give it a try and let me know what you think. On a more serious note, we'll be covering a news story that shattered hearts, brought people together, and showed how monstrous some human beings can be. We are going to be covering the Gabriel Fernandez case, specifically the new Netflix docuseries that premiered a few weeks ago. I finally had the chance to watch the series in its entirety and wanted to chat about it. Today, I will be joined by a couple of friends to go over the topic. First, let me welcome Garen Yamashita back into After Meal Chats. Also joining us today will be Brenda and Jeffrey. This is a heavy topic, and some of the things we are discussing may be disturbing for some. If you aren't aware of who Gabriel Fernandez was, he was an eight-year-old boy who was murdered by his mother and her boyfriend. He was tortured and beaten for eight months before his demise. The Netflix docuseries showed how everyone failed him, starting with his mother and her mother's boyfriend, Pearl Fernandez and Estaro Aguirre. So watching the series, figuring out that it's his mother and her boyfriend that beat this kid to a bloody pulp and taken to the hospital to find out he, you know, later deceased. It's crazy to me to think that, you know, a mother or someone close to his mother would do such a thing. Um, the mother's name is Pearl Fernandez. Jeffrey, um, I know you just watched the series uh, today. Uh How's that? How does that make you feel knowing that, you know, this mother was the one who helped co-conspired to like murdering her own son? This is uh, a little tough because like I've seen a lot of child abuse in my day. And just from uh, growing up in, uh, I guess you could say, a bad part of town and uh, Rubio. Uh, it's not the best neighborhood, but it was it was really tough to see it. Normally, even in families, you can see a little bit of abuse, but the, ultimately parents still love their, their children. In, in this situation, it didn't feel like Pearl Fernandez had any love for her son. Garen, I know you have kids. How, how does watching someone like murder their own kids, like, you know, how does that resonate with you? I mean, obviously, you know, it, it makes you mad, but... You know, I, I love my children to death. You know, I, w- I would die for them on, in an instant, you know. Um, but I also understand the reality of the world that not everybody is like me or shares the same values and that there are some terrible people in the world. Mm. Brenda, I know you have a master's in social work. So how does something like this like affect you in your, you know, your career path and how you've seen things? Or I don't know, have you thought of stuff like this when you watch the series? What did, what did it make you feel or think? Well, common sense is that children are some of the most vulnerable um, out there. Uh, You know, they lean onto their pillars of support, which at that age, really it's family. Uh, And as somebody who has worked in the field, um, you know, it just took a lot of time to process to really try to understand how somebody uh, was, was able to commit such an act especially for for the mother because you know this is her own child um as for her boyfriend you know he's he's in 
not related to this child. Um, whereas, you know, mom, like this is her blood. And for her to not be protective of the child and to also participate and possibly even uh, influence some of the events that took place was just, it's just really surprising and really shocking. Yeah. Like, you know, I was watching the series and, you know, the teacher was, you know, they had a Mother's Day project that was coming up. And, you know, this is like way into like, I think seven months in or almost up to his death where he's been beaten daily. He's has burn marks, ligature marks, cigarette burns on his head, his head shaved. And this kid, you know, he still makes a Mother's Day card for his mom telling saying how much he loves her and how much, you know, how happy he wants her to be. It drives me crazy because this mother didn't love her son and he just wanted love. And it hurts, you know, watching that. And it, I don't know. Um, I was raised by my grandma and I don't think watching this made me just want to go to my mom and be like, thank you for loving me. <laughs> it's, it's hard, you know? And then there's Isaru Aguirre. This guy is the boyfriend of Pearl Fernandez. He is the one who was convicted of murder in the first degree with a torture add-on. So with that, you know, he got the death penalty. Do you guys think that Pearl Fernandez should have got the same sentencing as him because she co-conspirated and was pretty much in it with him doing this to Gabriel? So just to kind of score you away on that, she accepted a plea bargain, which is why she didn't get the death penalty. Uh, she was uh, convicted of pleading. Uh, she pleaded guilty to first degree murder and murder involving torture. So she essentially got the same <clears throat> conviction of him without the death penalty because she took the plea bargain. But do you think they should have offered her a plea? Because personally, I don't think they should have offered her a plea deal. She should have been put down just like him. <clears throat> I mean, if you look at it in a black and white and just seeing what they did. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, it seems like they're terrible people. But I mean, you know, in, in the Netflix series, they tell you about. She was on meth since the age of nine. Uh, you don't fully cognitive, cognitively develop until you're like 24. That's when your like frontal lobe finally finishes developing. And it's like, how do you expect someone to mentally develop uh, when they're taking meth at nine? Uh, it just doesn't seem like it's possible. And when she was uh, evaluated by like the clinical psychologist, they, they did say she had um, the mental capacity of like an eighth grader. So she didn't, she didn't understand love. You know, she was abused by her father, uh, watched violence in her house every day. So it's like, how can you really hold someone like that, that accountable? But would that like, be fair? Look at her two other kids. She didn't do that to them. Like the fuck, like just this one kid, like, I get it. You're not, you're not mentally capable of love. Fine. But it wasn't like, she didn't. She did that to all her children. She chose one, <laughs> the youngest. Yeah, but we don't know what was going on with her, and we don't know if she, you know, if they killed her and they thought it was an accident. If she kept her kids, and it wouldn't have turned into another child. Um, and that's why it's kind of hard to to say, right? And, and you know, luckily, they they were brought to justice, but. Someone, someone who is fully mentally capable wouldn't normally do that, right? Fair. And I think it's also important to consider to um, her relationship with Gabriel prior to actually birthing him. Um, I mean, in the documentary, obviously the documentary is um, made to present a certain perspective. Um, and 
you know, there's always going to be a side of where, you know, certain people are going to look like the good guys and certain people are going to look the bad guys. That's just how it works. But, um, but just looking at the brief history that they shared prior to him, um, you know, being born, mom was adamant about not keeping him. However, her family, specifically uh, the uncle, was the one who convinced her to, you know, have the child because she was all for just terminating the pregnancy and, you know, not going through with it. But um, it was the uncle that convinced her to have the child and that he was going to step in and take the child and, and raise the child. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, how about you? How do you feel about Isaro and Pearl's verdicts and Isaro in general? This is uh, a little tough because typically I'm always like, uh, I'm always for giving people second chances, but then you sort of see this, these acts of horror and you realize just what people are capable of and you, you question their humanity, you know, uh, and you, and at that moment you, you, you want them to be punished for what they did. And, you know, I was, I was very much for them being punished and getting the death penalty. Uh, but it was, it's like Garen says, I don't know if you can fully just blame Pearl because it seems like she had a very rough upbringing uh, as well, but so did Gabriel. And you sort of see him change, uh, change as time went on he he became a, a little more temperamental in school but even so he still seemed to retain some of that innocence just um like he pointed out to the the mother's day project it seemed like he still truly loved his mother uh which is very strange i would assume you know if with all that he went through he would have some sort of resentment towards her and isaro uh but it, i definitely believe that they did deserve to be punished for what they did. And, you know, I'm glad they did get the sentencing that they did. Yisaro was sort of like the muscle in the relationship, it seems. He's the one that was physically beating him while Pearl sort of abused him in uh, other ways, cigarette burns and occasionally actually hitting him with a, a baseball bat. So they, they both had faults. I, I don't know much about Isaro's past. I don't think they spoke too much on on his upbringing. So it seems like maybe he should he himself should have been making better decisions. Uh, but it's always that's always a tough uh, tough thing to look at just the people's past and their upbringing and how much it affects people. Because uh, some people will turn out okay even if they had a rough upbringing. They'll they'll be loving and kind despite uh, abuse that they went through. So, you know, uh, when the series opened up uh, episode one, it's pretty much, you know, uh, a nurse talking to the camera and an ambulance rushing to the hospital. And then they start showing photos of Gabriel and, you know, usually gore or whatever. I can I can I can pretty much watch a lot of things. This was actually like one of the hardest things for me to like sit and like in one sitting and just watch through watching the nurse cry, watching the photos of this, you know, eight-year-old kid. He has burn marks, cuts, bruises. Like, this kid has been through the ringer. And, you know, it is emotionally, like, there's such an emotional weight to just watching this. So when you guys first started the series, um, what were your, like, initial thoughts going into this? Um, Brenda, I know like when you you told me we were talking about it, like 
you had to like stop 10 minutes in because it was really heavy. What, what was going through your mind when you were watching this? Well, it's like, you know, when you say or when you read something like, oh, uh, this person was murdered or this person, you know, their bodies, their body was covered in bruises or uh, covered in cuts. Um, I guess it doesn't really do it justice compared to like in the in the first, like not even 10 minutes in with like the ER nurse that was describing it in that detail. And from there, um, seeing the pictures and everything, like it's just so heavy and just so hard to to imagine that somebody at that age had to or, you know, endured all all that that had happened to them. And it's so, so much more impactful um, hearing it from somebody who was a first responder, who was there, the first person to greet them as the paramedics brought them in and to see just the raw side of what happened to him and to make the discoveries of, you know, pointing out, oh, there's this injury here, there's that injury there. And to have to process that for an eight-year-old to have gone through all of that and to have survived that many beatings before finally, you know, he took his his final breath. Um, it's just insane. Like you can't, it's just something that even now I can't wrap my my brain around that, you know, two people would do something like this to a child. How about uh, you, Jeff? What, what are your, like, what were your initial thoughts, feelings going into watching this docuseries? Uh, I knew it was going to be hard to watch. Uh, it was going to be the story of an eight-year-old boy who, like, who died. And, oh, man, I, I paused so many times uh, during this docuseries. It was, uh, it took me a lot longer than it probably should have to watch it, but that's because I was pausing so much. When I saw that photo, that full body photo of him, he was very swollen. He had cuts, bruises, burns, everything. And it's, it was just difficult to imagine how someone of his age can endure that much. Uh, you know, here, here's, here he is just a kid that's just really short. I think they weighed him at like 59 pounds. He's very small and he's being beat by this 6'2", 200 something uh, pound guy and his, and his mother. And it makes you wonder how some, some people could do that and how he endured that for so long is it was, it was just like uh, very frightening. <laughs> Yeah, eight months, man. Eight months of torture and pain, and then it was over. But you, Garen, I know um, you read up on this way before this Netflix series came out. How did, how did it, like, watching stuff you read about, what, how how'd that make you feel? Um, I mean, you know, of course I was angry. Um, and, I, you know, it's it's hard to watch, but, you know, I, I don't like to, to pause things, especially if they're emotional, because I like to feel... I like to know what I'm feeling. You know what I mean? I don't need to process it. I just want to feel it all at once and then kind of digest what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. And I don't know, in a sort of weird way, you know, like, you know, Gabriel didn't get any breaks. So why should I, you know, just sit through it and kind of uh, hunker down and, and just feel what was going on for him. You know, watching something that's that's like this, you know, where there's so clearly like someone who is can be demonized is kind of it's kind of weird in a way where you, you don't think that people like this are, are human. And so when they do sentence people like you know uh, Pearl and SRO to death, you're just like good, good riddance. Um, but I did kind of like the last episode where they had the lawyer kind of talking about you know the death penalty and should we have the death penalty and things mm -hmm. like that. So I found that was kind of interesting that they threw that in there. Um, I don't know if any of you guys noticed that too, but yeah, uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. So like, I don't know if this is the best place to put it, but <laughs> yeah, discussing the death penalty. Uh, I mean, like when was the last time? I think I read something like the last time someone was executed uh, that on death row was like 2006, I believe. Uh, so even if you're on death row, it, it usually like takes a while to, for you to get actually executed. It seems, uh, it's always a tough thing or like 
seeing if we should have the death penalty. And, you know, when you witness these acts of horrific violence, you, you say, yes, yes, we should for people like this. Uh, but, you know, then you wonder if there there's like really if there is any sort of shred of humanity left in them. Uh, for Isaro in particular, I know like uh, it seems his boss thought very highly of him. Uh, and that there was good in him, even though he didn't agree with his actions. He, she thought that uh, that there was some good in him, uh, the way he treated everyone around him. It makes you wonder why he uh, like why he acted differently at work than at home. There's always someone else behind the curtain, you know. Uh, we act differently from when we're at work than we are at home, and even with friends, and differently from family. Yeah, you bring that up. How the boss was like. Yeah, I believe there's good in him. And then the lawyer asked, like, you know, today, do you think there's good in him? And, you know, she couldn't. It was really hard for her to answer that because, like, he, the lawyer, the district attorney pretty much asked, knowing what you know now, do you believe there's good in him? You know, that's a question I should ask you guys. Do you believe there was any good left in Isaro after this all went down? Uh, Brenda, what do you think? Do you think there's any good left in this man? I think that's a really... Um... It's really interesting and tough question because obviously when you look at it, it's like, like Jeff described, uh, you know, 200 some pound guy, um, six feet, uh, eating up and torturing and pretty much killing this eight year old boy. Obviously the, the immediate reaction is that, uh, no, you know, there's absolutely you know, no good in a person who is willing to commit such a heinous act. Um, and at the same time, um, we don't exactly know his part of entirely his part of the story. Uh, just it seems more so like I think Jeff said it, that he was more of the muscle acting here um, in this case. And just to, I guess, bring in a weird perspective of things uh, to look at it. Uh, his, his relationship with Pearl is definitely very interesting. I know that uh, she mentally was, you know, at a capacity of like an eight year old and whatever and all that. Um, but. Oftentimes, things like intimate partner violence or domestic violence, whatever you want to call it, you always think, oh, it's always going to be the man that's beating up on the woman and uh, they're the controlling one. It's always the man that's controlling the woman, whether it be emotionally, financially, physically, whatever it is that may be. But in the doc the documentary, uh, there was one part that they shared where when they were in jail and they were separated apart, they had the conversation that was recorded between uh, Isaro and Pearl. And fortunately, they weren't able to play the audio for uh, what Isaro was saying, but for Pearl's part, you know, the things that they, she was saying um, to me sounded like she was the one that was in control of the relationship. And in this case, it caused me to stop to say, okay, what if he was with somebody who may not have been there to kind of feel whatever that fire was that caused him to commit those crimes? I'm not excusing his crimes in any way and what he did in any way, his actions in any way. But it's just if there wasn't that that voice, you know, from the child's mother saying, oh, do this to him, do that to him, kind of manipulating him into committing those actions, would he actually be a person that would do all these things? to this eight-year-old boy or to an eight-year-old boy or to another child. Uh, because when they were also interviewing the other children and the other family members, they all had a lot of positives to say about this man. And from his work to other members of Pearl's family to the other children that reside in the home, there was a lot of positive things that was shared about him. And so in this case, it just makes it so hard to answer <laughs> at that point whether or not if there was any good left in him. And I would say at that point, no. Mm. 
about I mean I uh, mean what what is the benefit yeah. of the question uh being what good or is there any good left in in MB? You know, the question was posed, you know, because it was at his hearing for the death penalty, you know, character witnesses. If there was good in someone, do you think there's a chance of redeeming? But if there's no good in someone, then is he well, worth I think, redeeming? I think that's just a ploy from the prosecutor to to kind of put black and white, you know, someone who thought highly of him, if there was any good left in him. You look at the trial and obviously there's nothing good you can say about that. And if you do, maybe some, you know, people will think maybe something's wrong with you. So no matter how she answered that question, it was always going to be the same answer. I, I think questions like those are, are are pointless and loaded and they're just playing on your emotions. Like, you know, I'm sure there was some good left in him. You know, he, he was living, he, he was raising his other kids, you know, the other kids and he was working and whatever. And in this, you know, incredibly complex and abusive relationship with this woman. But it's like to say what, what good, what does it matter if there's any good left in him? He already committed something that's irredeemable to society. So sure. if the question is, should you kill him or not? Because I, I think you should, because he did something that you can never return to society from. From it's like we put these these habitual child molesters in in prison for what they're going to for them to come it. back. It's not yeah, it's not they, something that they they can redeem themselves. It's something wrong with them. And uh, we have this like weird thing where we're like, oh yeah, well you know we'll just let them go. We'll put them on a list and they'll be fine. It's like no, it's not how the world really works. So yeah. I don't know. I mean that's a very strong opinion about uh, child molesters, but. I mean, that's fair. Uh, I, th- I share that same opinion. So, but I, yeah. you know, I just I think it's I think when people people find kids sexually attractive, that there's something wrong in their mind. <laughs> I think same thing when you fair. same thing when you yeah. can murder a kid when you can murder a child. There's something wrong in your mind. Whether he was whether or not he was manipulated shouldn't matter. Uh, being an, being an adult and a large male and you know an, uh, just another adult and the ability to make your own decision should have told you hey I have a moral compass I know this is wrong um, everything in society tells me this is wrong and so I won't do it. do it but he didn't have that he doesn't have that and that's what makes him dangerous yeah so you know the start of this doc- documentary is Gabriel Fernandez is taken to the hospital where he later dies and then the whole investigation is launched and you see the whole backstory into everywhere the system no, not the system. Everywhere, everyone failed him. At every corner of his life, Gabriel Fernandez was let down from his school to DCFS to the sheriff's department to pretty much anyone he came in contact with. You know, he was let down because nobody wanted to do something about it. Um, let's, you know, let's start with the school. Uh, the teacher noticed things called the principal principal told you know the teacher you know that's not our job we don't investigate things do you guys think if the teacher pushed harder i know she called dcfs a few times or the hotline uh, i'm not sure who she called but do you think if you were a teacher would you let this like seeing this student come into your classroom would you would you let him go home with the family if you saw the damage that was being done to him so i kind of i kind of want to say say a little bit to that to say that they didn't want to i i think it's kind of a little bit biased towards the film and what they wanted us to think as well i don't think you could ask any person working in a sheriff's office in uh, a school in you know uh, social services that they want to see a kid tortured and killed i don't think they would be like yeah totally do you know what I mean? I, I just think that there were so many things, so many other external factors that played into into what happened. Um, and if you look at it, look at like kind of like the quote unquote system failing. It's really bureaucracy, right? It's yeah. Not, uh, these I'd individuals kind of wanted to do something, but they're like, I'm going to get in trouble. We can't have overtime. 
you know, because these people are afraid of losing their jobs. They're like you and me. They have families to go home to, too, to, to answer why they lost their job. You know, and I wish that everyone could be like that security guard in that, that social services office who was like, you know what? I don't care. I know what's right and I'm going to do it. But at the end of the day, you know, like there are people with families who just can't lose their job. OK, so. You know, the sheriffs have visited multiple times and, you know, it's never stated once that they talked to talk to Gabriel. They talked to the mom each and every time. And she's like, he's fine. And they just left. Uh, one time they said he, she moved him to Texas and they just believed her. Yeah. Like, how do you like, you like, think you should just take that? that at face value? Yeah. Like, do you think that you should like two minutes? All they had to do is speak to this kid for two minutes and they would have known to like get him out of there. But they didn't. <laughs> but I there are that, rules, that right? Again. Yeah, I think that, again, goes back to what Garen said about how bureaucracy really Mm. was the thing that failed this kid. Um, Because obviously best practice would be to now would be you have to talk to the child, you have to interview the child, um, you know, for for the sheriffs. But at that time, uh, from what I understand is that, you know, that wasn't necessarily the practice. That wasn't what was like, you know, told to to the sheriffs, like, this is what you have to do. That wasn't status quo at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that after with this case there was a whole lot of revamps a whole lot of changes um you know sheriffs were given extra trainings laws have changed um a lot of things have changed since this whole thing and it's terrible that something it took something like this to happen before those changes were in place but at the end of the day it's like what garen said for some of some of these people that were mentioned they had to go by the rules that were in place at the time they had to go by the laws you know they had to do what they had to do to cover themselves and then at the same time you know follow with the protocols that were told to them at that time which is you know for the teacher like hey you, you make the report they they'll handle it like don't get involved like you know the principal saying that um to the teacher and it's not necessarily like you know, the, you know the teacher should have should have kept them the teacher should have done that because if you look at it at the end of the day she can be fired from her job um she can you know be charged with something else um for wanting to step in and protect the child but we got to look at it from that a global perspective at that time of what was going on and you know, what was in place. Yeah. Uh, just to go to back to that specific example, when uh, she just like straight up said, Oh, he moved to Texas. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on all like, uh, uh, you know, LA County Sheriff procedures, but it's not like they can just like, um, ask to go in and, you know, barge in, you know, if they ask to go in to see if he actually is there, I'm sure she could just say no. And then that's the end of that. That's, they, they, they all have rules that they need to follow. Uh, you know, the, they, they can only take it so far. So I can, so uh, from that perspective, yeah, I could see that all this bureaucracy and rules can sometimes get in the way of that. Okay. So in your guys' opinion, uh, just from this the, the series alone, do you feel like they portrayed as one one of these entities was set to fail? Like one of these entities were the main fault of what happened to him? And who do you who do you think the docu uh, the documentary was picking to be the fall guy? pretty much in this whole situation. I think they focused a lot on uh, DCFS. So I think that's uh, the, the system that they want you to have like a, a, a negative view on and just seeing uh, what the worker, the social workers assigned to the case were doing. You could uh, say that it was a lot of negligence, I guess, on their part. But at the same time, uh, one of them spoke out saying, well, you know, there's only four workers and nearly 300 cases. It's very difficult to manage that. Not that I condone the, their negligence or anything like that, but uh, yes, it's a very heavy workload. Uh, and with only like four or five people working on that, that's pretty insane. Yeah. So I, I think the reason why they went with the DCFS was because initially it looked like it was just their failure, right? 
uh, the sheriffs didn't have any written reports, and so they couldn't really know what happened with them. They the DA didn't even know that they had the internal affairs, um, the internal affairs like uh, investigation where they had like what how many pages of of information come out with all the interviews and like the nine sheriffs. So. I think it was like a hundred and nine page document. Yeah, and they they wanted to set precedents and and hold people accountable, even if they weren't going to get a guilty verdict, which I don't think they ever really intended on getting a guilty verdict from them. But they just wanted to kind of set the example and say, like, hey, you know, like gross negligence like this cannot stand. It cannot happen again. Right. But, you know, I, I think the it's kind of misplaced blame on, on a, a lot of them, especially the emergency response side, because in their investigation and even the trial, the lawyers like, hey, look, Stephanie, you know, kind of flubbed her job. She was new. She sent it up to her boss or her supervisor and he sent it up the chain and they told him no. And so he took it over to the other side of the house, which um, I, f- I forget what side of the house was. Uh, Something was- merit. Um, he was like oh, yeah. family services. services. Yeah. Yeah. And then, mm. I mean, I think that side of the house was just an example of like people who sit in a system and need to be fired, but can't because they work for this impossible program. You work for the government and you're there until you really like want to retire or your job doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's funny uh, as you bring that up, me and Brenda were just talking about this. Uh, like I was, we were talking about how like, I'm like, how is this lady still working here? And you know, she's got multiple complaints of her like rudeness to the people in work and people like, you know, the clients she has to go see. It's like, that's ridiculous that they can just sit there and be like, oh, I'm going to be on desk duty till I retire because can't fire me. Good luck. Yeah. It feels like it's like just very hard to to touch them and like get get them fired. Uh, maybe that's because they work for like city governments or uh, uh, how much blame do you actually want to like put on that system? Because it, it, it just keeps going further up the chain. You know, you could say it was the, the negligence of the workers. Or, but then you say, well, we don't have enough workers to work all these cases. So then who manages that budget? And, you know, it just keeps going up and up. How about you, Brenda? How, what do you feel? Who's to blame? Just just through the, the documentary itself. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds like a cop-out answer, but... Uh, but You think the whole system failed him? I'm not going to call it a whole system, but going back to the whole bureaucracy, um, it's just everybody, because everybody was trying to do their job to their best of their ability at the time, given the cards that they were handed. Uh, and unfortunately, it costed the life of you know an 80-year-old child. Uh, again, having worked in the field of social work in general... Um, it's really hard to say, oh, let's pinpoint it on somebody because I, I get it. I, I understand, um, what everybody was trying to do at the time, but going back with a good point that Garen made, which was, you know, he's a kid, Gabriel was, Gabriel was a kid. And the rest of these people who are all adults should have that oral compass should have sometime for lack of a better term, the common sense, uh, to kind of take whatever those steps may be to ensure uh, that somebody as vulnerable as a child is protected. And so for me, I would say everybody failed him because despite some of the knowledge that they had, some of the steps, you know, there was a negligence. There was a, there were different things, different factors that fell into, you know, the, the ultimate demise of Gabriel, which was his death. 
But yeah, at the same time, it, the responsibility should fall onto everybody to have protected him a lot better. I'm, I'm curious to know, since you've worked in the field, what would be required in for a medical investigation to occur? Uh, what do you mean by medical investigation? I mean, obviously, the social worker, as social workers, they were supposed to chart uh, the abuse on, you know, like, or marks on his body, uh, basically stating like, you know, when they went and checked up on him, he had bruises on his legs or, you know, whatever, they're supposed to chart something. But again, social workers aren't medical professionals, right? So when, when were, when, when in the process does a child get to see a medical professional? I don't know what that process would be for DCFS, um, that I'm not sure of, but in general, from what I understand with medical injuries, obviously the the child should have been directed to a doctor. So I'm sure there's probably some kind of protocol or something in place where it would there should have been some kind of examination, you know, done for the child. And, you know, one of the parts that I was really surprised about was when the mom, when Pearl brought out the suicide notes and showed like a counselor or somebody. Uh, one of the things that I was surprised about was that she um, she ended up only calling the hotline, which I'm assuming is like a report to DCFS or something, because I think they played a little bit of a phone call and it sounded like it was a call to DCFS. And I was really surprised that she didn't call uh, the, they used to call them pet team, but now they call them PMRT, uh, the psychiat- psychiatric uh, mobile response team, which is basically like if anybody, like at any time, so say like right now, if somebody here were to say like, hey, I want to kill myself or something. Uh, the response for any mental health professional or anybody in the field would be, okay, let's call 911, let's call PMRT, let's get them assessed to make sure that they're not a danger to themselves or a danger to others. So I was really surprised that that counselor, whoever she was, didn't call for uh, for that type of assessment. I mean, I don't know if she did or she didn't, but if she did, then definitely they probably would have sent him off to the hospital where I'm sure would have triggered um, some kind of a evaluation or something by a doctor because he would be in a hospital where he would have been examined and should have been, you know, at least medically, they would have noticed the injuries that were on him from there. Thus, I'm sure would have triggered a different response. Oh, I do have another question. Do you know by any chance of how well the systems talk to each other? Like how well the sheriff's department has communication with social workers who have communications with uh, social services, which has communication with, you know, whatever else is in the line of processing? That I don't know. I would assume like most government Things you know, they, they. I mean, I worked in the military for for ten years. Everything is kind of sectioned off and cordoned off because you only need to know certain parts of of your job to get things done, and they like it that way. They were showing how that um, was it Maximus, the call center for for whatever it was, was like, yeah, you know, we we did this, and it doesn't seem like the systems talk to each other. So I think that's a huge issue as to why failure like that uh, exists and, and existed then, and I'm sure it still exists now because you don't fix something like that within a few years. That's a whole restructuring of, of the entire organization as a whole. And I think that's pretty true. Uh, oftentimes, a lot of systems don't communicate with each other. I mean, um, like uh, my, my, my current line of work, uh, I work with, I have to team with other professionals. And oftentimes, you know, we're not talking to each other. <laughs> and it makes the job a lot harder because we don't have that overall, I guess, like go-to type database that everybody can access or whatever, given, you know, the different laws, different circumstances. So that's another thing too that we have to consider is that it's not, it would be ideal to have some kind of universal system that everybody can have access to, but at the same time, everybody deals with a different type of law or they're under different, held under, uh, they have to abide by different practices or protocols or whatever it may be for legality purposes. And that just gets into the way of effective communication amongst. I mean, if that's not the definition of bureaucracy, I don't know what is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
I mean, I think I think having an understanding of what like we all know how we feel watching documentaries like this, but mm-hmm. you should be getting a point from this. And I, I don't think that the feeling and the points always line up. I think you're supposed to feel angry. You're supposed to feel mad at the system and you're supposed to question the system. But the real thing you should get from this is how do we change a change the system to work and then. B, how do we change the system to work and not make it an abuse of power, right? Because I, I don't want – I know I don't want someone to report me for child abuse and have the police come kick down my door and do whatever the hell they want in my house. It's true. You know? So there's also that side of the house where it's like, yeah, this is terrible. An eight-year-old boy was tortured and killed, and that is you know just horrible and, and something that should never have been able to happen. But how much are we going to give up to ensure that doesn't happen? Because that's at the end of the day, that's – what we're at, what we're kind of looking at here. That brings back that question from last week, Aaron. Freedom. How much freedom are you willing to give up? I think that's a better way to tie it into it because uh, with this, it can easily derail because obviously it's very emotionally charged. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody's going to have their biases. Uh, everybody's going to want to point the finger somewhere. But at the end of the day, I think the question should be asked is how should we as individuals be held um, accountable to do our part in situations like this like you know if you were in the position of whether being a teacher or the social worker or a sheriff or whoever it is that might be that came across his child um you know it could be just a random person walking down the street and you see a kid who's covered in marks and bruises like what are you going to do like yeah how can you be a better part of your community uh possibly you know that this uh could come down to you know, people that's within the system, but also, you know, just the people that live around you. They had neighbors. I'm sure he was outside at times, too. Uh, but, you know, just remain observant. If you see well, something, say something. Well, not not only that, right, because obviously people did say something. The teacher said something. The security guard said something. And it's still able to fall through the crack. These are public institutions. These are things that I pay taxes for. Public schools. Department of, uh, you know, or DCFS, which is what Child and Family Services, the Sheriff's Department, those are all things that I put my money into. And if they're not able to give me the results that I want, how do we change that? Um, and, and I think, in my opinion, it's like, it's always like a fine line of like what you can and can't do, right? Like, could we give people more power and prevent another Gabriel Fernandez? Yes. But is that necessarily the steps that we need to take? I mean, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a balance of, you know, how much uh, power do you want to give the system, right? And you don't necessarily want to give up all your rights, uh, but maybe, I think this was kind of uh, brought up in the documentary, the, the, they were paying attention a lot more to the adult rights rather than the child's rights. So maybe it's just shifting it a little bit, not necessarily uh, giving them, giving the system more power, but just shifting things in a different direction. Well, I guess my question is like, what is that direction? Good question. Don't have an answer for you right now. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I guess it, you... it goes back to, too, like what you said about like freedom, like what you just mentioned right now, Garen, about how you don't want to be called in because you were disciplining your child. Uh, well, literally, you don't even have to have proof. Like there was that one, the one thing where the ex-girlfriend called on the girl who had um the, the what was it like a 10 month old oh the foster mother yeah the, and then yeah the and she's like yeah i just broke up. up with my girlfriend and i you know that's probably who called it in it's like when they they were in there they were doing an investigation yeah you know i think at that point uh, especially in the foster system it, which is its own special like thing yeah i think yeah you need to do that but you know i wouldn't i'm hard pressed to tell to have the government tell me how to raise my kids 
Mm-hmm. I would say. And um, I think that's just, that's a really hard thing to balance to is being able to, you know, you be the parent of the child, but at the same time, when there's an issue, when there's a crisis, you know, just how much of an intervention should the quote unquote system or should the government then step into, um, to have to, you know, put onto the family, like, obviously it's not going to be possible where there's going to be 24 hour supervision or something. And, you know, how's that going to work in the long term for, you know, oh, let's say you put a family under supervision for like 24 hours, like for like a year. And then after you step away, is that, you know, going to continue or, or are they going to fall back to what they were doing before? Because if you look at for a lot of these families, what us as outsiders looking in, we might say, oh, what's wrong with these people? But at the same time, when that's something that you've grown up in and that's something that you're around every day of your life, that's that's normal. So how yeah. how is it that we're supposed to find that balance of somebody else, an outside entity coming in, you know, telling somebody how to live their life? which is including how to parent and raise their children. Oh, no, I just, uh, you know, I, I saw what they did, They were doing with like this, like data, data mining and this like, you know, deep, deep learning computer system and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of a way to make this easier where the computer system will, hey, look it over and it won't miss what people miss, right? Because we're, we're all emotional, like, oh, I, I could look and be like, oh, this kid's got bruises. I had bruises growing up. But the computer is going to look at that unbiased and be like, okay, that's a, that's a risk, you know? Uh, and that should be assessed. Um, oh, his hair's cut weird. That's kind of a risk, you know, and then all adds up to this computer system where it's not like a human making a judgment because we don't know what each of these people have been through in their life. And may, they may have, you know, like have their own I mean, biases. Right. I mean, I mean, so most of us are or, we're mostly minority friends here. Uh, I'm sure we were uh, raised with a uh, heavy hand at some point in time in our lives. <laughs> oh, definitely. I was, I was definitely heavily uh, disciplined in that way. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I, I look at these kids and like, oh, my God, my mom took my iPad away or my mom spanked me. And I, you know, I'm going to call child services on them. It's like, what? Like, what is wrong with you? Why don't you just listen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's humans making human judgment. I think this computer system will hopefully take better care um, of our children. And mm-hmm. of, you know, of people in general. But we'll have to see where that goes. And I think it's very interesting. I think it, I, I really think like computers are going to take over the world. So <laughs> a less, a less human touch. <laughs> You're saying then, uh, do you think it's maybe better to go into a more, uh, I don't know what you call it. Uh, more digital. Un- digital, less human supervision. Yeah, I think I think on on terms like on things like that. It's important to make unbiased judgments, and mm. I think computer system, even though they have a penchant for being uh, biased against low-income um, minorities, minorities, I think it's a little bit safer. Yeah. So you know what? Let's uh, we'll pose that question to our listeners. Um, what do you guys think would fix the system to you know save more children? Uh, I know there's there have been changes that have been put in place to ensure children are safer but you know no system is perfect uh what are you guys' opinions and um i just want to thank everyone for listening i know this was was a heavy topic i want to thank brenda jeffrey and garen for joining me again um we'll see you guys next week thank you